Thank you for tuning in to the Identity in Me podcast. I'm your host, Stena. This is part two of my conversation with Tanisha Johnson, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Seacoast. As usual, I'm joined by my friend and colleague, Dr. Sahoy Lee, who's a licensed clinical psychologist and resident expert on the podcast. She'll be sharing her professional insight about my conversation with Tanisha after our conversation. Enjoy. out there, you're visible, um, your team is as well. I also know some of the energy, the counter energy that's out there. And I'm wondering if you receive death threats or just threats in general and how you deal with that. We did. Um, in the beginning, we received them way more frequently. Um, every now and then with the new neo-Nazi groups that pop up or just ignorant white folks that pop up. Um, our names may be put on different websites or different things, but lately it has kind of been quiet, knock on wood. Um, Clifton probably receives a lot more than I do because he's more in that political world. He does more of the political activities, political groups, and I'm more of the youth and, <laughs> and events and family space. Um, the BLMC Coast has been the target of a lot of just negativity, um, threats, violence, and we ignore we report what we need to report to the FBI group and the rest of it we ignore. We ensure that any events we have have a safety component to it. Any rallies, speeches, panels that we do have a safety component to it. We have volunteers who come out and maintain peace, our peacekeepers. Um, and as much as we do hate the police, we do have a police presence when we need to just yeah. to ensure our safety because people are crazy. We've had protests where folks will drive by yelling, some very bad obscenities and we've had to really just stand guard and let ourselves know that we're doing the right thing. We're doing this for impact and for change. And every time they drive by yelling, whatever they yell, we say, this is why we're here. Yeah. Um, so thinking about police officers, you just mentioned the police. And I know that you um, recently started a collaboration with a police officer and uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what that collaboration is and how it's been received so far. So um, I do, we have a podcast called The Conversations We Should Be Having, and that is with myself and the chief of police of Elliott, Maine. His name is Elliot Moya. Um, he is a Hispanic man who's actually from New York who moved to Maine a few years ago. He's a veteran and turned police officer. Um, so this actually stemmed from him and I did a project together with Najee Brown from Theater for the People um, at uh, Seiko's Rep, and it was called Project Empathy. And Najee kind of volunteered us to be a part of this event and read each other's stories. And it was a moment of vulnerability, 
um, empathy, relationship building, all of that. And so Elliot and I was placed together. He read my story. I read his story. um, And it drew very much um, a large sentiment of just support, um, understanding, and really people just couldn't fathom an activist and a police officer doing something together because according to the world, we're not supposed to be connected. We're not supposed to talk to each other. And so which is a huge misconception about what Black Lives Matter really is. Just because we say F the police and abolish the police doesn't mean we don't talk to the police, doesn't mean we don't want to work with the police to break down these systems, right? It's a very huge misconception because if that was the case, again, we're just going to keep spreading the divide, right? If we don't come together at some point, it's going to end up having segregation all over again. And so from that project, um, Greenacre approached us and said, there's been a lot of just feedback and interest on the two of ours dynamic. And they said, would you all be interested in doing a podcast? And we were like, no. (laughs) they said no 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 this would be really good by the way who's green acre green acre is the baha'i center in elliott maine they do a lot of projects with theater for the people with seacoast african-american cultural center um with they have the afrocentrism project right now so they're doing a lot of events that they they are a religious organization but part of it is um their religious perspective is that there's a oneness in humanity. So they are trying to bring together conversations, bring people together um, in a diverse and inclusive way to further humanity. Wild oneness in humanity. Jeez, that's such a crazy idea. Please continue about this project (laughs) with the police officer. And I say all that to say, I am not a part of the Greenacre community. They are a fiscal uh, fiscal sponsor to this podcast. Um, And in the podcast, you hear me talk a little bit about I do differ a lot in their thinking. So does Elliot. But the intention was not to be the Baha'i center of thinking, but to really just bring two people together to talk about what's going on in the world, Um, to show that two people with a different mindset, different perspectives can still come together and foster change, to listen to each other, to even disagree with each other but to stay in the room and be empathetic and learn where we're coming from in order so that we can start breaking down these walls. And that's really the basis of the podcast is Elliot and I are not changing thoughts. We're not going, oh, now I believe the way you think or you think the way I think. We're having conversations about situations or topics or cultural events and saying, this is why I think the way I do. This is the history yada, yada, yada. And then we're going, oh, okay, I understand. But do you understand my way and why I think this way? And then how can we make change and be at the table together? Ooh, okay. I'm intrigued by this. Mm-hmm. Um, so have y'all bumped heads in these conversations? We have, we have. So we, yeah, we've recorded, um, I mean, this is a long-term project, right? I think started about a year ago. Um, and the podcast just came out about four weeks ago. And only, I think we're only up to episode two that's out. So there's six episodes and each episode has a different topic. It started with just us talking about how we got here and then the goals of the podcast. And then the second episode was about BLM and my thoughts and history on BLM and his understanding of it. The third episode is about police and Elliot's perspective of police and how we got there. Then we start talking about unity or what is that concept of unity. Um, 
And then we do a couple other topics um, in regards to our relationship in the world. And we butt heads a lot because we do talk about the police violence and the need for police. And he has a couple of stories where he's like, what if police weren't there? And I'm like, a mental health worker could have been there. You know, yeah, <laughs> you yeah, know yeah, things like yeah. that happen. We butt heads. I'm like, why are we shooting to kill? Why not shoot in the arm? And he's like, are you kidding me right now? If I'm in the face of danger, you want me to shoot in the arm? And I'm going, absolutely. Where's your training? And he's like, there's no training for these certain type of moments, you know? So there's a lot of times we do bump heads. And I believe in episode three, you hear Elliot get a little bit more emotional and more um, concrete in his thoughts that you'll see a start, you'll see the dynamic start to shift. Not that we leave fighting and arguing. You're not going to hear that in the podcast, but you are going to hear us combat each other in a positive way. Oh man, there are no bleep, 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 bleep. No, I mean, We're not I think doing they drama. Edited out. There, they edited a lot of <laughs> drama out because there was drama. I'm not going to lie. There was a lot of drama. I think in the trailer for episode three, you hear me like yelling in the, tra- in the trailer. Yeah. Like, I can't believe you just said that. Um, but it is a good conversation because we don't end with F you and walk out the room. We end with, okay, I got you. Maybe I'll think something differently about the scenario next time. Maybe I just won't rush into, I hate you, so to speak, but I'll be like, I understand where you're coming from. So I may take a different approach. So are you evolving in your thinking at all as a result of these conversations? Like, did he offer a perspective that led you to con- reconsider a, a position that you have? No. And it's funny. We just did a panel and um, we did a panel with um, a bunch of youth high schoolers and they asked that same question. Like, did you all change your perspective? And my answer was, and still is, no, I did not change my perspective. I am still about abolishing the police. I am mm-hmm. still about changing our systems. Um but how I approach the conversation may be differently. It won't just be from a place of my point of view of saying, let it all go. And this is why it's from a point now that understanding the police, you know, perspective in mind, they want the same thing. They're following the law and they're like, we didn't make the law. We're following the rules given to us and we have to carry them out. Are there bad apples? Absolutely. And are there good apples? Absolutely. Um, so how I come to a conversation to the table now is not just my way of thinking, but it's, this is my perspective. And here's why from both point of views. I wish you much luck and success with that. All right. Before I let you go, before I let go. Sorry. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, Okay. So you're a parent of two children, just as I am. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how you raise your um, kids to be socially conscious, or if you do. I'm thinking about my own process with the girls here. And so uh, for a number of years with the older one who's 17 right now, um, I would assign her an NPR article or some article from a publication. She'd have to read it and then answer questions for me. And um, as you can imagine, the teen pushed back. It's like, come on, man. Like, I just came from school. Can I just chill? And it's like, no, you got to know what's going on in the world because otherwise you'll be misinformed. Yeah, I get that from my father. Uh, My father was very much one who wanted me to be informed. And it wasn't around like social activism. He just wanted me to know what was going on so that when conversations were happening, I'd be able to um, participate and not just sit there and nod my head. And so I've tried to pass that on 
to the girls. And so um, I don't assign the articles to the older one anymore. I've kind of just let her be. And instead we talk at the dinner table when mm -hmm. she's up the headspace for that. Mm -hmm. um, the eight-year-old, uh, she just read two books this summer, three perhaps, uh, but um, yeah, three books. She read um, who was Rosa Parks, who was Harriet Tubman, and who was Mary Curie recently. And um, there's the Rebel Girls book. And we're always talking about these characters and history and people presently. And so I just want them to be baseline informed, especially going into school and being misinformed intentionally. But it's not the easiest thing to do. So I'm curious to know what your process is. And I want my audience to be thinking about this. You know, I think every Black family does this. In some way, shape, or form, we do this with our children, um, having them understand the history to know why the present is the way it is and how to navigate the present. And so I did the same thing with my 16-year-old daughter. Um, since she probably started kindergarten or was able to read every summer, she had to read books on Black history or Black people or by Black authors. And so she started early with understanding her Blackness, understanding the history, and understanding how she has to be as a Black young woman. Um, so that has always been ingrained with her. Her grandfather and her father's also very pro-Black. So she's always had this element of pro-Blackness that helped her or actually shaped her to who she is now. She is the co-director of the Black Lives Matter Youth Division. All right. Um, so she has, she does activism on her own. She has spoke at the women's marches in Portsmouth. Um, she was nominated for an award with Stay, Work, Play as a rising star. So she is off on her own. Um, and I credit that to just kind of starting that with her as a young girl. My son, on the other hand, who's 10 or about to be 10 in a couple of weeks, he's a little bit slower to it. You know, yeah. he is biracial. So he hears stuff from me. But he also hears the opposite from his father, who is a white man, right? Because regardless of whether white men and white women want to be with Black women or Black men, mm -hmm. there's still this disconnect of how Black people are treated in the world. Yeah. His father didn't understand it up until his son was called the N-word last mm -hmm. year in school. Mm -hmm. And from that point was the shift of, oh, <laughs> my son's yeah. Black. <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yeah. oh, my, they don't see my son as white. They see my son as a Black boy. And so Dom has had to evolve into understanding who he is as a Black child um, and start to understand his history. So he's just started reading and getting into that. I've had more conversations at the table with him than I've had with my daughter, so to speak. So my way of pushing my son into understanding what's going on in the world is through conversations at the table. And that has been working for him. He's not going to be my activism kid. But he's going to be my kid who I'm going to have to prove. I don't want to say prove, but really show what being Black means. And it starts with conversation. You know, he actually might evolve into that because oftentimes a crisis or a series of them lead people to shift the way in which they address issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I've, I've seen this in students at the academy. You know, they will express that for a number of years. They just tried to fit in mm -hmm. and... Um, over time, they just got tired of the microaggressions and something clicked within them. Mm -hmm. It takes boys a lot longer. Um, it, it really does. I've, mm -hmm. I've seen that. Um, and my own journey with activism was a function of a history teacher 
interestingly enough, a white man um, who was very much an activist who literally hovered around me for months, like, I want you to come to this meeting during club meeting time. I want you to come to this club mm-hmm. meeting. And I'm just like, oh, yo, I'm just trying to go play ball with my boys, man. Right. And then one time I made the mistake of walking by his classroom on the way uh, to playing basketball with my boys during club meeting time. And he saw me. He's like, hey, come here. And I came in the room and here I am many years later. Um, I met other young activists in the room, didn't understand why people were so riled up. Right. And and then I realized it, especially and I'll tell this story very quickly. We were sitting across from each other at a retreat, black students and white students. He had us sit that way intentionally. And the black students, one by one, talked about how they were encouraged to start at the basic level, literally basic, and then move up if it was too easy. And then the white students were like looking at each other, puzzled, like, oh my God, that's so interesting because our guidance counselors told us to start at the higher levels and move down if it was too hard. I'm like, yo, wow, that's interesting. And my guidance counselor was a Black woman. Mm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I'm like, this is so wild right now. And so all these years, I didn't take honors and AP classes because I'd look into the classroom and only see white kids and say to myself, oh yeah, I'm not trying to be with all the white kids. I'm not Mm -hmm. trying to act white. So uh, that group really um, taught me a lot. And then I took that activism into college. And I'll tell that story in a separate episode. Mm. I'm just Mm. happy that um, you were here today to um, have this conversation. And um, I'm telling you, your son will have a series of these conversations, hopefully not events like being called the Mm N-word. I'm so sorry that happened. But he may end up taking the torch from you and running this organization. You never know. I hope so. We shall see. Or get a soccer scholarship. One of the two needs to happen. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Good luck with that. I hope he does get it. I'd be remiss to not ask you how people can access the podcast that we talked about. What's the web address? It's actually the conversations we should be having.com, but you can also access it on any um, place that you get your podcast. So Spotify, Apple Music, all of that stuff. All right, cool. And then you did ask for me to finish off the episode. Please with the song. do. With and so song. if you can jump in, by all means, we're just going to do the chorus. And then a hero comes along, comes along with the strength to carry on. And you cast your fears aside, and you know you can survive. So when you feel like hope is gone, look inside you and be strong, and you'll finally see the truth that a hero you actual chocolate. All right, y'all thought Shahizel left me, but um, Shahizel is still in the house. Shahizel, otherwise known as Dr. Sahoy Lee, who joins me to uh, provide some perspective about the conversation. And so Shahizel is back. What's up? And then the hero comes along. See, what, what did you think? Did I impress you with my uh, singing prowess? Uh, 
Yes. What I was also impressed about is that you were offered to be a performer at the gala. So I'm impressed by your confidence. Yeah, I'm talented, you know, and I like to share my talent with the world, e even if the world doesn't believe I'm talented. <laughs> the world can't handle you. Yes, Stanley. yes. You know, I sometimes feel like Randy Watson, you know, Randy Watson uh, was a performer and coming to America and really underappreciated. And, you know, shout out to Randy Watson. He hasn't performed in many years. And um, I don't know if folks got the sexual chocolate reference at the end of the episode. Did you get the sexual chocolate reference? <laughs> I think so. Yep. Coming to America, a movie that I have watched many, many times. Randy Watson performed, I believe, The Children Out of Future, Teach Them Well and Let Them Lead the Way, and had the classic ending of sexual chocolate. Sexual chocolate. Yeah, it's an all-time favorite movie, and folks have probably gotten used to my reference to old school things. It's kind of part of the show. I didn't even plan for this. It just happened. I um, my, soul, my soul is stuck in the past. But I'm thinking about that movie, right? And the storyline is Prince Hakeem, Eddie Murphy, um, grows up in um, Zamunda, uh, a fictitious country in Africa, and his family wants him to marry um, a person through an arranged marriage. They want him to marry a woman. And he declines and uh, goes to, off to the United States, Queens, New York specifically, to find his bride. So he's like, where is he going with this? Why are we talking about coming to America when this is about activism or radicalism? Bear with me, though. I'm with Bear you. with me. I'm with All right. You. So by the end of the movie, he finds his bride, but he essentially pushed back against his family. He wanted to find his own wife. He didn't want to live like royalty anymore. And because his family didn't listen to him, he did this radical thing of leaving entirely to pursue this different life. See? See? I told you. There was a tie-in with the conversation. This matter of not being heard leads to a radical act. So even in a feel-good comedy like Coming to America, you see that in a character's development. And so that's what my conversation with Tanisha Johnson was about. And I'm just curious to get your thoughts on it. You know, what came, came up for me as I'm listening to you tie this in is it's not just not feeling heard and wanting to push back, but that there was a trust in your inner voice. There's a trust that he had that his bride was out there and it, it was going to be a different way. And I think about Ms. Johnson, I think, wow, she at multiple times of her life had to kind of trust her inner voice and to, to say, wow, this is what I want to do right now. And she attended to that, it appears, at different times. When I think about her story, I think about activism can look differently for different people. And with her, it sounded like it's looked differently for her at different times of her life. And there were times when she needed to attend to, you know, becoming a mother and her family and being from Jersey and then come to New Hampshire, like every phase of her life, there's a different chapter to her activism. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And she attended to that. She leaned into it. And it's just great that she was able to honor that within herself and not pigeonhole herself that activism had to look one particular way always. And the other thing I noted was uh, something I said in the conversation with Tanisha that the environment informs the activism. So can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah, you know, it's this idea of nature nurses nurture, you know, they're my thing really about her. And something that strikes me is she is that person that is powerful, that will attend to herself and her voice. And that's part of her personality. I think she probably people who know her well would say she's always been this way. And then there's the nurture part, which is her environment allowed her, afforded her these different opportunities that then she was able to reflect on and kind of do this nature nurture vibe, right? Um, so that that really struck me that she was able to do that. And, and what stood out for me, you know, you and I work with young people. We work with kids who are, what, 14 to 18, maybe 19. Yeah. I spend a lot of time telling kids, you don't have to figure out your life out right now. <laughs> Yeah. There seems to this be this pressure of like, I need to know what my life looks like right now. I need to do it for the college process. I need to do it for blah, blah, blah. And that pressure is so big. I find myself telling folks, you got to slow down and just be in the moment because you never know what is going to, what door is going to open and what's going to, right? And I think about Ms. Johnson doing that is that every time her environment changed, she shifted. and. And, and things just kind of opened up. And the thing was BLM, right? Same thing. She would have said two, three years ago, if you told me the Zoom call was going to turn out to be what it is today, I would have told you that you were silly, yeah. right? Yeah. But she went for it anyway, not knowing where it was going to go. But look at it now. And so I hope that when your listeners, you know, listening stories like Ms. Johnson recognize that you don't have to figure it all out. Um, you can figure it out along the way. And there's something really powerful about that. I'm reading a book right now. Actually, I just finished it. It's titled Panther Baby by Jamal Joseph. He is an instructor now at Columbia University. Once upon a time, he was a Black Panther Party member. I think he would probably still say he's a Black Panther at heart. So he goes from being a regular youth growing up in New York City to eventually becoming an activist in the Black Panther uh, Party which then results in him being incarcerated for a number of years. And so I, I'm not going to tell the whole story, but that's mm -hmm. the gist of it. This individual, Jamal Joseph, did not grow up with his uh, mother and father. And later on in life, he learned that his father was a revolutionary in Cuba. And a lot of things just made sense to him. He was wondering mm -hmm. if he ended up moving towards this activist life because it was inherited that it was genetic. And so when we talk about nature and nurture, in this case, I'm reading the story and I'm like, you know, it seems clear to me that the apple didn't fall far from the tree. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to discount a genetic component um, to even personality. Right. Yeah, yeah. And it's hard to not discount the importance of, of, of environment and opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So it's this magic kind of perfect storm <laughs> um, that can happen for individuals. Seems like it. So when people are faced with what they consider to be an unsafe situation, their natural response is fight, flight, or freeze, right? Mm -hmm. Would you say that activism falls under this response framework? Oh, that's interesting. You know, I think it's a little different than kind of that immediate knee-jerk reaction when at face of danger, what do you do in the moment? Kind of like a panic um, response. I think about activism a little differently. It's not so much knee-jerk, but it's a little bit more of a uh, intentional act. You know, it is a, upon a lot of reflection of this is not okay. I want to do something about it. What are some things that I can do? I remember, and I don't remember where I read uh, read this or heard this. Somebody said, don't get mad, get organized. Mm 
Mm. <laughs> you know? yep. And it's this idea of like, okay, something has wronged you or something has kind of troubled you or you see something that's not right. Okay, we can get mad or we can do something about it. And I, so I think it's, it is a lot more, it's not just a knee-jerk reaction, the, the fight, 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 freeze or, or flight, but more of like a phase of adversity, a phase of challenge. What can I as a person do about it? So I think it's more intentional and a lot more thought goes behind it. Got it. As usual, I appreciate your insight. You do such a good job of helping me make sense of these conversations and offering your professional perspective. And as a matter of fact, when I posted the first conversation, I immediately got an email from somebody like, yo, what happened to Dr. Lee? But no, I appreciate that. That's why I invited you to be a special guest on the Identity in Me podcast. Thank you. It's always an honor and pleasure to be in your presence. And I always love talking to you. So anytime. Honestly, I've been thinking about this matter of Dr. King-style activism versus Malcolm X that came up in the first episode of this two-part conversation with Tanisha. The roots of their activism was born out of the conditions of the time and not being heard, as opposed to some random desire to agitate. The version of King we learned about in school and continue to see in the media is a simplified, peace-seeking humanitarian who firmly believed in the common humanity of all of God's children. This version of King envisioned a world where his children would be judged by the content of their character and not by the color of their skin. While true, it's rare that we also hear about the version of King who is staunchly opposed to the military industrial complex and a harsh critic of capitalism. In my mind, he was as much a radical as Malcolm X, but I could certainly see some distinction between the two. And let's not forget both men were assassinated. Like King and Malcolm X, Tanisha's activism and perceived radicalism is a function of the conditions of her time and the feeling of being unseen and unheard. It's mind-boggling that some folks are more upset about a group that calls itself Black Lives Matter than the egregious actions that gave rise to the organization. I appreciate Tanisha joining me on the podcast to have this conversation, along with the work she's doing in the Seacoast community. Be sure to check out the podcast that Tanisha referenced the conversations we should be having. Until the next episode of Identity in Me, keep reflecting. Identity in me. Identity in me.